Welcome to PWN's Debut Review, a weekly podcast devoted to debut art and its creators. This podcast is co-hosted by instructors from Project Right Now, a nonprofit writing studio. I'm Courtney Harler. And I'm Ray Brunt. Hiding just out of sight, summer mornings, winter nights, your moonlight in Vermont, like a ghost it haunts you. Today we interview Ken Womack, a prolific writer and professor at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. A leading worldwide authority on the Beatles, Ken hosts a podcast for Salon called Everything Fab Four. Ken's latest novel, The Time Diaries, is available now through Mount Nittany Press. In our chat, Ken discusses his particular path towards scholarship and publication. He treats us to a reading from his new novel, and then shares his thoughts on his work in progress. So don't look away. Here's Ken Womack. One of the things we do on this podcast is we have what we call a seed pod segment, and it's generally our first segment that we talk to our guests. And you've written, I I think, about 16 books on the Beatles in the last 16 years or so. Is that about right? I think it's close to a dozen. Um, there, there are several that have been reprinted and abridged and that sort of thing. So it's probably closer to a dozen. Okay. But o- over the course of maybe 16 years, maybe 17, give or take. That's very close. Sure. So you've written every year and a half or thereabouts, you've written another book on the Beatles, which is pretty prolific. And you also have a podcast called everything fab Four which is about the Beatles. You can talk about that a little bit if you'd like to, but what, what is it that inspired you to develop your own inner Beatlemania, so to speak? Uh, you're a little too young to have experienced the Beatles firsthand when they were, when they first came out and when, you know, before they broke up, but you became obsessed with them obviously at some point. And what was the, that initial image that you have or, or musically, or what was it that really struck your interest? Sure. And, uh, in my case with the Beatles, I don't have a mania and I'm not really <sighs> obsessed and I'm serious. Yeah. Um, I'm not a fanish person. So, you know, um, in, in my office here at home, you won't find artifacts or collectibles. There'll be a, you know, a keepsake here and there, a paperweight maybe, but, I'm not really a collector and or 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 a Beatle maniac. I don't think but you have I, a true passion, though. I do have a passion, and it it was the way it developed that I think has has marked me as a writer. So I discovered them as you as you noted. I'm not a first generation fan. I discovered them in, in around 1977, so I would have been 11, and they uh, they showed up in the form of those really lame cartoons, not Yellow Submarine, which was cool and official, but 
but the ones that were out in 65 or so where, you know, they had other voices and they, they were really akin to, you know, what I grew up with, which were Saturday morning cartoons, but I'd never seen that cartoon until 1977 when it preempted the show I usually watched when I ate my Cheerios or King vitamin or whatever it was. Yeah, right. And it was, uh, the, that show was the new zoo review, which I really liked. And, uh, it had like these giant talking and singing animals, you know, who would get into situations and there would be moral conclusions and that kind of stuff. Uh, and just one day the new zoo review was, was gone and these Beatles cartoons were there. And the stories weren't great either, but it was the music uh, that really struck me. I was 11, so I'm starting to listen to uh, Top 40 radio and other mm -hmm. kinds of radio formats. I'm getting my feet wet, and here's this music by the Beatles. And it's different and better. It's arresting. Um, and I, I, I think I discovered them, I like to say, in much the same way that you know, the kids who are in my Beatles class this semester at Monmouth University discover them. You hear them one day and it's a before and after moment. You know, they're different. They're extraordinary. And the reason why I have enjoyed them in a different way or pursued them or had a passion for them in a different way is because I was interested in this band. My parents, who had really missed Beatlemania in the 60s um, or weren't interested uh, my father went to the library in, in Houston, the big downtown library, and he picked up every Beatles book they had and brought them home. And, you know, he and my mother, their philosophy was, if you're going to be interested in something, you should study it. So literally from the first day or so of my interest, I had this big stack of books that was defining how I thought about them. And so, you know, once I come of age and I'm at book writing age which is, I guess, any age. But I've always pursued them as a matter of scholarship and trying to understand their story. Yeah, so it went from those lame cartoons right into books pretty quickly, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, I didn't write a book for a long time. I did write a story for my junior high school paper, The Kingwood Cougar, which I believe is still in print. Um, <laughs> not my article, but the, the, the paper at Kingwood Middle School. And uh, I wrote a piece, and it was lame, on the Paul is dead phenomenon. Right. Because it seemed so weird and odd to me. In fact, I remember putting it together because even in those days, we didn't quite have computer setting yet. So I had to mark out all the block letters so that it could go to the printer and be typeset and, and all of that good stuff. Um, so that was an education. But yeah, really, from the beginning, it was it was a scholarly approach, trying to understand them. And loathe these, you know, nearly 40 years later, uh, I'm still struck by the same aspect about them, which is how does this group from Liverpool um, with their particular set of educational and sociocultural values create this lasting legacy that goes from the primitive sounds of Love Me Do in, you know, the summer of 1962 to the Swan Song Abbey Road album in the summer of 1969. It's an almost straight upward trajectory. There really is nothing like it in art. And that's what keeps driving me to think about these guys. Well, we could sit and talk about the Beatles all day long, but we, we do want to cover some other things with you. Yeah. So in addition to all the Beatles books, um, which I think Ray will probably touch, touch on a little more later too, 
Um, you've written lots and lots of other books, uh, both fiction, nonfiction, and you currently have a new novel on pre-order um, from Mount Nittany Press called The Time Diaries. And it's about Mary Cassatt, the American Impressionist painter. We were hoping you'd tell us a little more about the impetus behind that project. I'd be thrilled to. It's it's a mystery, and it's a real-life mystery that I tried in my own way to solve. And, you know, if you can't solve the mystery, you should write a novel about it and then fictionally solve it. So that's what I did. I've been really thinking about this the last few weeks, that maybe I should go write the book that's the nonfiction study of it. Although finding the principles at this point or at least finding connective tissue to them would be darn near impossible. But anyway, it really involves a lost Mary Cassatt painting that was presented by a fellow named Colonel Shoemaker, who was the uh, executive editor and publisher of the Altoona Tribune in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And prior to mid-century, mid-20th century, Altoona was a, a city on the go. It was on the move. It went from a few thousand people to nearly 100,000 people in the, in the 1940s because of the explosion of the railroad. And in particular, Altoona's connection with the Altoona Curve, which was the engineering, the technology that allowed trains to move more swiftly across the Allegheny Mountains. So it was a big deal at the time. You know, it was enabling, you know, population centers, uh, particularly New York City, to connect with other parts of the nation faster. Altoona and Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania nearby became these hotbeds of the location of car shops and engine making shops. And the reason why it's connected to this story originally, we have to go back to the 1870s when Alexander Cassatt, who was president of the Pennsylvania Railroad, lived in that area. And uh, in fact, for his lifetime, he was the most famous Cassatt. It wouldn't be until later as people discovered and reconsidered the Impressionist painters that Mary Cassatt, you know, just shot by him and became one of the most important artists, uh, female artists, certainly of the 20th century. And one of the finest and, and most enduring impressionists, along with Degas and others. But anyway, Alexander Cassatt lived in central Pennsylvania. And Mary Cassatt, because of the Franco-Prussian War, had to leave Paris. And she was very angry about this. Her, her family and her brother insisted that she come live with them while the war was raging in France and in the region. And so she, in, in great fury, came back to Pennsylvania. She'd been born in, I believe, in the Pittsburgh area, and uh, just sat it out furiously uh, and, and felt dwarfed by the mountains. She was really bothered by the landscape. She'd been used to cities, and now she's out in the country with these tree-covered mountains, and she wasn't getting a lot of work done, if any. Um, she didn't really plan to be living with her brother again in that way, and as soon as she could, she got out and went back to Paris. Uh, well, this was enough for Altoona uh, to make the connection in the, say, early 20th century when they decided what they needed to become a big city was an art institute. And let's face it, a city that's veering toward 100,000 people in the 20th century, particularly that part of the 20th century, is getting to the place where it should start having all of these kinds of civic virtues. And so Colonel Schumacher led this movement, and he did it in the year, interestingly, that Mary Cassatt died, Alexander um, I believe was already dead by this point. And, and he had left a great monument that I know the three of us know well, Penn Station was his mm -hmm. idea. The original Penn Station, not the, not the thing we have now. He had been responsible for planning out the tunneling and all of the, the great uh, engineering feats that 
that allowed New York to connect to New Jersey, et cetera, back in the day. So Colonel Shoemaker saw the answer to their growth and being a city to this painting, which he presented to a fledgling group of people, very small group that included uh, some art lovers in town. He set up a special event in what was what used to be a very amazing hotel called the Penalto Hotel. It's, I believe it's now public housing, but it was this grand, you know, early 20th century hotel. They had a luncheon. Uh, the city fathers weren't there because they're out, you know, they're railroad barons, but the city mothers were there and they were at the luncheon. It was a fine luncheon and they presented the painting and there's lots of ooing and eyeing, And of course, good press coverage because remember, Colonel Shoemaker is the editor of the newspaper. So it was a front page story. He announced gleefully that soon the painting would be installed in the new city hall across the street that was only weeks from being finished. What a grand moment, right? Unfortunately, near as I can figure, the city mothers decided just about as they were leaving that afternoon that there was no way anybody was going to be drilling holes in the brand new walls of the city hall that Altoona so rightfully deserved. And within a matter of days, there was an ordinance that was passed, which outlawed uh, the affixture of anything on the walls of City Hall, unless it were religious in nature. Well, Colonel Shoemaker was not to be deterred. (laughs) And he said, I vow that we will fight this and we will store the painting. And it would be seen one other time officially in 1939 at the Baker Mansion, which interestingly is on the street where my home in Pennsylvania is, this grand uh, sort of mansion on a hill. And they showed it in an exhibition in 1939, shortly before the war broke out, and no one has ever seen the painting again. Wow. And you can imagine what an unseen cassette would be worth, right? I mean, it's millions. So that was the makings of my novel. And I set up a conceit with a graduate student winning a genius award and trying to track this thing down. That's an astounding story. That's crazy. (laughs) Well, you've lived in Altoona for a number of years, right? When you were teaching out there. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, is this sort of a well-known tale out there? I mean, is it something that you unearthed that, or, or is it sort of common, common story out in Altoona? Oh, no, it began to come to me pretty soon after I arrived there, which would have been the late 90s. I began to hear this story, but, but never anything concrete. But I, eventually I came into the orbit of a couple of prominent citizens who told me about it. And I said, well, I've heard that, but is it real? And and one woman, in fact, had done some of this research. She knew about Colonel Shoemaker. I took it many steps further and began to find out the names of the members of the Altoona Art Institute and more information about, they had three other more minor artists in their collection. And in fact, I was able to find at least one of those paintings on the walls of the current library in Altoona. I did do a little sleuthing <laughs> about two years ago um, on a break from uh, Monmouth here at the shore. And I went back to Altoona and I searched around City Hall because when I moved there, there was a huge controversy and it was kind of a different one, but but related. There was There was only one thing hanging on the wall of City Hall and that was the Ten Commandments. A number of people by this point said, well, that's not right, you know, church and state, separation, et cetera, et cetera. And so a long battle began. And by 2002, the family that had originally presented that uh, Ten Commandments back in, I believe, the 20s or the 30s, 
uh, said, look, let's just take it down. It shouldn't be in the city hall. Well, let me just blow the lid off that right now. It's not hanging in the entry area or in the lobby. But I went through every room. They were on break, too, so I kind of had the run of the place. And it was up in the city contractor's office, our Mm -hmm. comptroller's office, sort of out in a corner. And there it is, flashing its Ten Commandments for all to see. But, of course, what isn't hanging on the wall today is that missing cassette. So, yeah, uh, some people know about it, and there are actually a few who actively look for it. But, you know, where would you even begin to find it? Well, it seems right that the Ten Commandments would be hanging in the comptroller's office. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thou, thou shall not steal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, there yeah. hasn't been any any rich embezzlement or anything. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining like you know a stone slate on the wall, but really, yeah, right. what, what, what does it look like? What does that? What do the Ten Commandments look like? Yeah, it would look great if it were like that. It isn't. It is. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, maybe this looked good in the 20s or the 30s, right? But it just is gold lettering kind of a small font. There's just not a lot going on. I don't think there's any kind of imagery other than the words. They don't even, you know, bolt out at you like some versions of the Ten Commandments look like. And it certainly doesn't conjure up the kind of majesty of the film or anything like that. It's just... Uh, <laughs> just hanging on the wall. That's right. It's, well, it's just now it's in the corner resting on the, the comptroller's desk or behind. I think it's next to a printer, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So how exciting, though, to be handed such a story and then to be able to run with it? Well, it, that's finding finding storylines in everyday life, right? That's what's fun and exciting is to, is to pick up stories from the real world and then try to bring them to life. And we do so with, you know, if, if you write enough, you do so with differing levels of results, right? I feel like I pulled it off and it sure was a lot of fun to write. But, you know, I I actually gave a talk on this last week at Princeton. They had an art historian there who had just purchased, they just purchased a a cassette for the the museum on campus. And so they had me paired and he gave a really lovely little talk about the discovery of that painting and and had x-rays of it, which, by the way, I always find incredibly cool to look at x-rays of paintings because you can see what's behind them and all the nails in the canvas. They're really cool looking. And, and then here I am rolling on telling about this mystery painting, which um, I got some laughs and it was a lot of fun, but it reminded me that there is probably a nonfiction study of this. But again, how do you find the witnesses and the threads that you can pull on? No, I, I think you've, you have to imagine them, which is what you did, right? <laughs> True, Ray. That's, it's an incredible story, though. Would, um, would you like to maybe grace us with, reading a passage from the book? The first chapter is called An Enterprising Young Thing. It starts in June 2015. And it is the story of of my character, Judy Coker. She's a graduate student at the University of Chicago in art history. And by the way, um, just to make things interesting, she has a, a condition called Stendhal syndrome, which is actually diagnosed condition where when one has aesthetic experience that is too intense... They can faint, uh, they can become nauseous or uneasy, and this is what she's dealing with. And of course, it's an irony that she's an art history student who can't look at art. I'll just read a little bit of it. An enterprising young thing. Judy Coker waits alone in the narrow cinder block corridor of the University of Chicago's Department of Art History. She reminds herself for the upteenth time that morning 
not to stare indiscriminately at the artwork that adorns the walls of Professor Bleeker's office. No wayward looks this way and that. No lingering glances at the murals and prints or its curtains, or at least it could be. And it's not as if Judy weren't already nervous. Being called into her dissertation director's office is a frightening enough proposition in and of itself, and especially since the spring quarter had ended only a week earlier. Judy's uncertainty about the day's events has already placed her on high alert. At the appointed hour, Judy makes the long walk down the corridor, head down, eyes lowered, to Professor Bleeker's second-floor office in the university's art center. Of Austrian descent, Professor Amos Pascal Bleeker is, by a considerable margin, the oldest member of the faculty. At departmental events, he enjoys joking about joining the university so long ago that it still operated collegiate sports programs when he first trolled the green fields of Hyde Park. Big Ten sports at the University of Chicago ended in 1946, he fondly observes, but I'm still here, still going strong. For her part, Judy adores Professor Bleeker, and most certainly she freely admits because of the warmth and richness of his thick European accent. But his most fervent appeal involves his remarkable storytelling power. He can really spin a yarn, turning his graduate seminars into the stuff of great novels. And in Judy's world, where sensory overload always seems to beckon, Professor Bleeker's legendary narrative prowess is a welcome respite from the other instructor seminars, what with their over-reliance on so many PowerPoint images. Sometimes, she simply closes her eyes during Professor Bleeker's courses and listens. Besides, it's safer that way. When she arrives at the entrance to Professor Bleeker's office, the door is already open. As she crosses the threshold, the unmistakable smell of pipe tobacco greets her with its lush undertones of chocolate, vanilla, and exotic fruit. For the briefest of moments, her senses are dizzied by the rich marriage of aromas. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, he exclaims in his buoyant Germanic accent, shaking her out of her reverie. You are here and right on time, I see. Carefully navigating her way through six decades of collective academic detritus, Judy eases herself into the overstuffed chair in front of Professor Bleeker's disheveled desk, making certain that her attentions are concentrated fully upon the smiling octogenarian in front of her and purposefully avoiding the multitudinous artwork that pocks every inch of his office wall space. You must be wondering why I called you in today, he announces, why I'm being so mysterious. She enthusiastically nods in Professor Bleeker's direction. You can say that again, she says, never breaking eye contact. Then let's get down to brass tacks. Neither of us has any time to spare. You have a dissertation to write, and I, well, let's just say that I'm already living on borrowed time at my age. Judy smiles awkwardly at this last remark, puzzled by his blasé approach to death, wondering to herself how someone, anyone, can be so carefree about no longer existing. Congratulations, Professor Bleeker announces, even more jovially than before, which is saying quite a lot, given his unquenched enthusiasm for life. You have won the department's annual Summer Genius Award. That's amazing, Judy answers. But I didn't even know that I had applied. Why, my dear, you hadn't, he interjects. I took the liberty of applying on your behalf. For me, she replies, of course for you. You are my best student. My goodness, you are the best student in the department. Who else should be the recipient of $20,000 for the singular pursuit of any project of her choice? It has to be you. What an unexpected honor, she replies. Which begs the question, says Professor Bleeker, about how you intend to spend those monies. No, 
She closes her eyes for a moment, desperately trying to imagine how she might go about spending her unforeseen largesse. And then just as suddenly she opens them up again, she's got it. I could go to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Arts, I suppose, Judy answers, sighing deeply to herself. I am still trying to suss out the problem, the one we talked about during our last meeting about the institutional custody of Winslow Homer's The Fox Hunt. Pshaw, Professor Bleeker interrupts. Homer will still be waiting for you in the fall. For a moment, it occurs to Judy that she has never actually heard someone say Pshaw before in any context, only having encountered the phrase in the pages of Victorian novels. But you said it was a publishable idea, she replies, absentmindedly brushing a strand of chestnut hair out of her eyes. They could, it could help me land a job after I finish my dissertation. Ah, but what if I had something better, he says, something, shall we say, more interesting. As Judy sits there, staring into Professor Bleeker's eyes, he breaks her gaze and carefully removes a time-worn gray photo stat from his desk drawer, gently sliding it across the desk for her inspection. She briefly holds the document up to the pale fluorescent light above his desk, squinting her eyes in a futile effort to make sense out of its contents. Let me save you the trouble, says Professor Bleeker. It's a photostat of a bill of lading from Paris in 1926. His earlier enthusiasm and unabashed joviality have been transformed into solemnity. This is serious business here. For a moment, Judy breaks Professor Bleeker's stare, catching sight of a series of framed sketches above his right shoulder. As she feels her stomach turning itself inside out, she forces herself to avert her eyes and recapture the professor's gaze. Let me guess, says Judy, it's a bill of lading for a painting. Not just any painting, replies Professor Bleeker, a cassat, or better put, a missing Mary Cassatt. Hi, I'm Jennifer Chohan, Executive Director of Project Right Now, a nonprofit transforming individuals, organizations, and communities through writing. I wanted to thank you so much for listening to our new podcast, PWN's Debut Review. At PWN, we believe in the power of story and the connection that forms when stories are shared. We are so grateful to the artists who are sharing their stories with us during this first season. If you'd like to know more about PWN and the classes, workshops, and events we offer, please visit us at projectrightnow.org. That's right, W-R-I-T-E, projectrightnow.org. Thank you. That's perfect. No, I, I, I just, it just gets you into the story and creates the, um, creates the interest and, you know, pretty quickly and, um, Kasha. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I pictured WC Fields saying that in a movie perhaps, but I've never heard it used before. Well, Professor Bleeker was around when it was invented, so it's right, okay right. to use it. <laughs> That's funny. You know, um, we were going to uh, we were going to ask you a little bit about historical fiction and 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 research, and but you you've sort of covered that a little bit already. Um, you know, your research process and and what it looks like as far as the novel. But my particular favorite of yours is. John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. And maybe we could talk a little bit about researching 
that book in particular and how how you came about wanting to write that particular book that particular year obviously the year of his death and, and the research process in that particular book i think that one i've been thinking about for about 40 years because going back to my earlier story no sooner had I discovered the beatles than a few years later this terrible thing happens with the assassination. I've been thinking, you know, like many people, Beatles fans and non-Beatles fans alike about how horrible that was. And really my only intention was to create a book that would follow John's life and not be about his death. He has this, he sort of gets himself up off the deck and has a marvelous year after several years of self-imposed retirement. And I find that really exciting. You know, he actually, working closely with his wife and a few others, he develops this second act for himself and uh, just does so in exemplary fashion, slowly but surely, uh, one triumph after another, learning how to sail uh, on the open sea, you know, writing new material in a new and different age, uh, working closely with his wife on a fabulous song that they recorded during the last week of his life. Um, and enjoying his five-year-old son, you know, this uh, four years from four years old for much of this book. And uh, it's just a fabulous place he's at. It's not as though real life doesn't have its problems. It still does, of course. You know, it's not wall-to-wall good times, but or even wall-to-wall triumphs. But it's a almost day-to-day or month-to-month study of him stepping up and, and having those experiences and then no longer existing, you know, in a sense. And I, uh, to me, it's, it's what I would hope for all of us, right. To, to have lives and then have these kind of late triumphs. Um, of course he was barely 40. So calling it a late triumph, uh, seems so wrong, but historically for John Lennon, it was a late triumph. So my goal was to, was to tell that kind of story. And I, had a, the research was very challenging. There is so much written about him. Trying to find out what's true and what isn't is difficult. And also, I wanted to try to push away some of the headline items and drill down a little bit to, you know, just the nuance of everyday living. And fortunately, his his widow and his his son had left some some good, uh, really great essays that were fodder for this discussion. It was on a mission to sort of reclaim him from death and present him in life. Well, obviously you did an amazing job with it. And to me, it's a, it's a book that is about rediscovering joy to a big degree. Cause I think that at least that's what I got out of it is that particular year of his life. He, he sort of rediscovered joy and it was, it was just taken away so quickly and so sad. I'm not, well-versed in the, in the Beatles um, or in Beatles lore. And I predominantly read fiction and lately a lot of poetry. So I went back and took a look at your first novel, Ken, from 2010, I believe. Mm. It's called John Doe Number 2 in the Dreamland Hotel, uh, wherein you write about Timothy McVeigh's sidekick. So um, that had a immediate connection for me. I lived in Oklahoma from about 2000 to 2005. And the, the people there really were still reeling from that horrific attack, you know, even a decade later. Um, I was wondering, you know, this, this kind of ties into your research methods as well, but 
how you approached writing about such a devastating event. The one thing you notice right away, too, is that you stick to the second person, you, as well. Um, writing in the you is the John Doe. And so does that choice also reflect your approach to this work, which is in and of itself kind of fraught and hard to approach as a writer? Sure. And and I'll tell you right now, agents were not thrilled <laughs> with the second person, you know, added on to the other challenges of the storyline. But the second person seemed like a big problem to them. And, you know, when you think about it, there aren't a lot of well-known novels in the second person. I can name a couple, but, you know, this certainly did not join their pantheon. Although I, I'm, I'm very proud of this book. I glance back at it occasionally. I wanted to try to understand why this young guy who seemed pretty smart would go so wrong and how that would happen and how that could happen. But to do that, you would need a witness. And so, you know, as you may recall, after the bombing, there was rumor that there was an accomplice and they called him John Doe number two. Within days or weeks, it was discovered that there, the person who thought they saw somebody with McVeigh had conflated uh, a different event with seeing McVeigh. But I ran with it. You know, let's make this guy real. He's a Quaker. Um, I tried to make him someone who would be different than McVeigh so he could be an observer and watch these events take place and try to understand again how this guy gravitates toward hate and racism and the other qualities of what at the time, the militia movement, the gun show circuit, this whole business um, to try to understand it. You know, and I think in many ways in our culture, we're still trying to understand these fringe elements or sometimes not so fringe elements, right. That veer toward the mainstream and, and how they can end up gathering such force and uh, that's what I was interested in. And by inventing this character, John Doe number two, I was able to get a seat in that car that Timothy McVeigh drove around in for a couple of years toward the end of his life. Interesting. Yeah. So the, so the young kid drops out of college. He is a Quaker. So he's a non-talking, non-cussing, non-drinking, non-forticating kind of guy. And then he gets matched with, McVeigh and that just sort of destroys his previous worldview. Um, and that's in fact kind of like, you know, he's, he finds himself going down this path when he's in college, um, this path, he, you know, he's in love with a girl or at least in lust and, and he feels so guilty about that. That's actually what aligns him with McVeigh. So it's really interesting tension in the story. And I, I think, I do think that the you was the right choice here because it's a character that we can't quite know. And the you does put a lot of the onus on the reader, right? Redirects that uh, point of view onto the reader and asks the, the reader to almost quite literally put themselves in the shoes of the you. Yeah. When you, when it comes to these kinds of fringe movements and their ability to gather steam. And, and when people don't provide counter arguments to them, we're implicated, right? Even if we, not directly, but we as a society, 
uh, as a people are implicated too. It was, I think it was Gore Vidal who, who had interviewed him and said that really all this kid needed was adult supervision, you know, at a certain point for somebody just to talk to him and mentor him in a different direction. But, you know, he was walled off, which is, again, another reason why I just sort of invent this guy. Well, you clearly have your hand in many, many stories and <laughs> many modes of research and creativity. What keeps you going on the daily? As in, like, what's on your metaphorical mood board these days, so to speak? Well, I, I like to look for mysteries. Um, I'm interested more and more in in deeper narratives that explore um, mysteries about loss or unexplained gaps in people's lives. And uh, for example, I've been reading just voraciously about the famous museum in Boston, right? Where $500 million worth of paintings were stolen in 1990 and they're still lost. And the attempts to find them, I'm just very interested in those kinds of stories. And I, I look for new ones like that. So a lot of my time is I guess in a way, I'm kind of like a journalist sometimes. I'm just looking for these things and thinking, is this some story I could tell? And of course, the lure of all of this, right? Whether it's, you know, a novel or a new Beatles book, it's the same thing. It's it's being able to disappear into another world. And, you know, we we all have jobs and we all have responsibilities and we have the world, which sometimes seems to be roiling with trouble and despair. And having a world that you go to that you can retreat through for a while is exciting. And I really enjoy it. And, and I think that's what keeps me opening up a new word file all the time is just, I want to go to another place. And indeed when it, when I really feel like I'm in a rich place, there's a postpartum feeling afterwards, you know, where I just, I can't believe it's gone because it's, it had the nerve to be finished. When you are done with a book or done with a project, because you've done so many books and you've done so many projects, do those characters tend to stick with you? You say you have a kind of a postpartum period, but after that, are you able to let them go? And is it a good thing or not? I am able to let them go, actually. It's being with them and in the space that I like more than maybe individual characters. So I've never had a struggle with, wow, I really miss John Doe, or I really miss this person or that person. It, it's more like I miss the, the quality of being in that world. You know, so in the John Doe case, I remember my wife would ask me about, you know, where, where are you in the story? And I'd say, well, we're, we're in the car and we're driving through Ohio, <laughs> you know, or something like this. And, uh, and, you know, she'd be like, what, we're, <laughs> you know, so I, I connect in that way, but it's really being in the world that I miss. And that's the good part of the world. I, I don't miss being in the part of the world where parts of Oklahoma City are leveled. Certainly not that, but just the experience of, of being in a place that you, you know, whether it's, even if it's a nonfiction place, you have to invent it. You have to give it a quality so that when you come back to it, people can recognize it. I imagine you were ready to get out of Timothy McVeigh's head at a certain point as well. Yeah, he is deeply frustrating. Yeah, and what a waste. So absolutely, there are, uh, I, I, I don't miss him. I found him to be frustrating. And in fact, a lot of times when John Doe would think something 
about being frustrated with Timothy McVeigh, I didn't have any problem writing that because it was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it was you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Sorry, sorry. Thank you, Ray, for keeping us in the right. Uh, you know, the right on. place. You got to keep us in the right point of view, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, Ken, you you've done all of this work these these past years, and you know. So, of course, the big question is, you know, what's next? And because I know there's there's always a what's next with you, and you know, maybe you could give us a teaser on what what's coming up. Can you give us a teaser? Sure. So about a year ago, the family of uh, one of the Beatles roadies, a fellow named Mal Evans, uh, his family asked me to consider telling his story. And this very naturally piqued my interest because it's one of the holy grails of the Beatles world is trying to understand what happened to good old Mal, dear old Mal. He was this giant of a man um, whom you can see photobombing thousands of pictures of the Beatles in the 1960s. He was their roadie, their personal assistant. He easily spent more time with them than any other person during that Beatlemania heyday. He was there in the studio when they would have these 14-hour sessions. He was on the road with them. He was at their beck and call even after the breakup. Uh, he is at the beck and call of at least three of them. So Mal is integral to the story. He was killed by the Los Angeles police in January 1976. And he too is a mystery. And so armed with all of this material from his estate, uh, I'm going back in time and I'm rebuilding bridges so we can understand what happened, why, why dear old Mal ended up in, uh, that space with the police on that fateful day uh, and understanding his role in creating uh, the fusion of the finest band that ever was. Well, we certainly look forward to you solving that mystery because there's a, there's a lot to be solved there for sure. But um, listen, this has been great, Ken, and we really appreciate you coming on and we look forward to the Mal Evans project when that comes out, hopefully 2022 sometime, perhaps? At late 2022 or early 2023. Okay. It is a monumental task. And it's actually, here's the last of the teaser. It'll be two books, but the first one will, will be the one that arrives in late 2022 or early 2023. So okay, great. A lot to look forward to. And and that is a world that I've been in for the last, uh, almost the last year, and am happily still there, trying to find my way around. Well, I'm sure you will. <laughs> we look forward to that one. Once again, thanks for, for coming on. Thanks, you guys, for all the great work you do with Project Right Now, which is, uh, I, I too, have, have uh, at your tutelage, have, have had many great experiences with it, and it's... Uh, it's just a wonderful, thought-provoking, um, active, proactive concept. Way to go. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ken. It's been great. Hey, thanks, you guys. Thank you for listening to PWN's Debut Review. I'm Ray Brunt. And I'm Courtney Harler. We loved having Ken Womack as our guest today for Episode 4. From Liverpool, UK to Altoona, PA, 
Ken took us on a literary and scholarly journey through his body of work. Thank you to all of the listeners out there who have joined us again for this episode. Remember, if you're a fan, please follow, rate, and review the podcast for us. Next week's guest is Hannah Anderson Harris, an essayist whose work has appeared in many fine literary magazines. Hannah writes compellingly about current events and women's issues. So stay tuned, because our next debut could be you. PWN's debut review is hosted by Project Right Now, produced by Jennifer Chohan and edited by Adam Wells and Lisa Hartsgrove. Zoe Gullickson is our creative marketing manager. The theme song, Don't Look Away, was written and performed by Mimi Cross and produced by Kevin Salem. Questions, comments, complaints? Email us. Debut review at projectrightnow.org.